What does place have to do with beer? It goes beyond where you drink it and even where it's made. A beer is made in a brewery, but outside of the water, very little locality makes its way into a beer. The grain is often shipped in, like the hops and the yeast. You can get local core ingredients, but very few small breweries have that kind of access. Some brewers turn to ingredients found in nature, right in their backyard, to bring a sense of place to the beer. My guest on this episode, the writer Stan Hieronymus, knows a lot about what goes into beer. His books include For the Love of Hops, Brewing with Wheat, and Brew Like a Monk. In this conversation, we focus on topics that gravitate toward his 2016 book, Brewing Local. In it, he focuses on what really gives a beer a sense of place. Ingredients like chestnut, juniper, pawpaw, mushrooms, and lavender. As he puts it, lovers of these ingredients in beer make up a niche within a niche. But as we veer into territory nowadays where beer is spiked with fruity pebbles, lactose, and artificial flavorings, it's worth venturing back to the roots, and nuts, and leaves. I'm your host, Will Sis, and this is It Starts With Beer. One, two, three, four. This episode is brought to you by Back East Brewing in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Their taproom expansion with indoor and outdoor seating makes Back East the perfect place to enjoy beers like Ice Cream Man IPA, Recoutra IPA, the award-winning Porter, and any of the other delicious beers in their ever-changing lineup. Go to BackEastBrewing.com for more information. I'm really happy that you have a chance to talk with me. Look, there's this long history of brewing with ingredients outside of barley and hops, you know, for the fermented sugar and flavoring and aroma. What do you think the casual beer drinkers should know about the history of Americans using local ingredients? In terms of history, I'm not sure it's that big a deal, but you have a new interest from people of what things taste like from your own. Um, and, and I don't get credit for this line. It was actually Mark Jilk from Craftsman said it. So, so when you drink some of these beers, you realize they come from part of your own world. Mm. Uh, and, and beer is not defined. And, and this was, harder for people to understand 50 years ago or 40 years ago uh, before the advent of craft beer, the idea that it's, it's just this pale lager that you drink mostly because it's what's available and what's advertised the most. So all these different flavors. So, so the unique flavors you get from a pastry stout, uh, an IPA, which may also have fruit in it. This is one more option having something, for instance, with the, 
that could be with basil from your garden. What was it that made you feel like a book like Brewing Local was really needed? What, what was it that inspired you to write the book? Lots of credit goes to Scratch Brewing, and they have their own uh, book, which has lots of recipes in it, and I highly recommend. It, we were living in St. Louis at the time, and, and I go to Scratch quite often, and, and you would see what they were doing, and then understanding this, this history going back to, in fact, a, a history that goes back before Columbus, where beer was made uh, mm. by the indigenous people at the time and think that there's a connection through all of that. What is it that people, that you wanted people to know about? I mean, what story did you really want to get across? Because you delve into a lot of different regions, a lot of different states. You delve into different experiences with brewers what do you think people needed to know that, that they didn't? What, is, what are some of the big macro things about brewing with local ingredients that most brewers or, or drinkers really don't understand? Some brewers come in with this preconception of how beer is made, and they, they want to continue to be between those lines. And I, I think one thing they can learn and this is important on an ongoing basis and, and this also sorting out of, you know, what is craft beer? What are, what flavor are people going to drink next? That the most important question is how are you going to stay connected with those drinkers? And for drinkers, what, why, if, if I care about what I am drinking, why do I care about it? And is, is this person true to what they are saying and you know this this whole premise that they're not interested in making just this industrial product one of the things that makes something craft is often when i think of like another another object that might be craft craft you know jewelry making or making a vase that they aren't all going to look alike and they're also going to be inconsistent but that's kind of a thing that beer drinkers do insist upon is that if they love a beer, they want it to be consistent. Where do you see local ingredients falling in, within that? Because again, availability, the crop that year. Well, I think the consistency has to be that it tastes good. And so if, if it doesn't taste 100% like it did last time, that's okay as long as it tastes good. And, and that certainly goes to the brewer's skill to understand what differences there are, whether it's with this crop or this different ingredient. And, and another thing, which is pretty common for humans, is, is to want new things, to, to want novelty. Um, and there is a certain novelty in some of these ingredients. And, you know, it's intriguing to think that, that you can make something that tastes like an IPA and, and it is different for the simple reason that it uses three different varieties of basil. So it's a conversation that you can have about those sorts of things, but it doesn't taste like the other basil beer uh, that you might have had before. And it's a bit of a moving target, too. You, you really need to um, 
be a master of your craft before you start going off in a different directions, or, or maybe not. Are you finding that the brewers that work best with local ingredients are ones that are more experienced, or are you finding that that, that doesn't even play a role? You need to understand what's going on with brewing, whether it's through experience. And also, uh, and, uh, uh, many people who are making interesting beers are also really wise in the in the food world as well so that they're understanding how all the ingredients come together so your experience is not necessarily only as a brewer it's more as somebody who tastes things and knows what these ingredients are like and and what flavors they may add to it but but it is essential that you also have this skill as a brewer and and know just you know you don't want to be serving beers with flaws the fact the fact that you made it with unique ingredients is does not make it okay to have it be a technically flawed beer that's a really good point too it, it it's not a it's not a magic trick that they're performing at the expense of the overall quality of the beer tell me a little bit about the different regions and states that you're able to go to personally do you find that there's one or two regions or areas of the of the country where they're kind of they have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the uh, vibrancy of the local ingredients that they can take advantage of you can find interesting ingredients almost anywhere i i an obviously tricky aspect is and, and people are interested in making beers like these and they live in the middle of a city that's a little different sort of challenge. And sometimes mm -hmm. people just want to grow their ingredients, uh, which is fine. But I, I think including going beyond thinking, oh, I just want to use spices. And I, and I know the spice rack. And in some cases, people go, I can't get the spice. I'll just use the spice. Uh, where, when you, you can say, this is from my region. So it may be your ability to collect mushrooms, for instance, or using tree bark. Right. And, and understanding certainly the differences with bark on a particular tree or within particular regions. So, you know, those are, those again, are nuances. Um, you know, if, if you're someplace where you can collect acorns, then you can use acorns, but maybe you're not someplace that has acorns. And then it also goes to the, the food culture of that region. So what, what you might do in North Carolina is going to be a lot different than what you might do in Minnesota. People take it now, especially when food trucks and food is such a, an important element mm -hmm. of, of breweries today, that to complement the two and to be really mindful of what you would pair with your, with your beer. Right. Well, certainly brewers have an advantage where you've got different food trucks coming in, and sometimes the food truck isn't using anything local, but they may have a local something using whether it's a spice or a root or something like that you say "Ooh, that's interesting and in fact you could turn around and do some sort of collaboration with with that food truck and it, it could be a, both a beer and then then th that's made with that particular ingredient and then that food truck serves a dish made with that particular ingredient you know i think people then will understand the flavors that come from it even better right it comes down to that whole idea of you know, are these flavors going to be complementary or are they going to contrast to really put one in relief and so right. you can really, you know, it really stands out. 
So that takes a lot of planning and 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 conscience, you know, when it comes to putting it together, which is not something that a lot of brewers think about or brewery owners per se, because it can be expensive or uh, it can also get in the way of quick turnaround of certain beers. When it comes to making a choice for a brewery to say, we're going to commit to using local ingredients, are you finding that that's a hit to their bottom line or does it not really make a financial difference? As far as the bottom line goes, people are going to be more inclined to do this. The biggest expense is the time they're taking, whether it's foraging for ingredients or learning about the ingredient. And I I think they they do this because they want to, you know, there's a certain pleasure and you're, you're, you're not doing it to say it's, it's a marketing gimmick really is something you get maybe one or two times it is, but the people who are involved and seeking out these ingredients and then, then brewing that same beer multiple times during a year, at least once a year, it, it comes from a commitment to them that makes it more important than trying to translate it directly to the bottom line. We're coming into spring. What about the seasonality of beers? Are there certain ingredients that come to mind that you associate with spring? That this is this is the kind of uh, ingredient that you would either collect during this time and then make it for late in the spring or early summer or or certain beers that with ingredients that are great this time of year. Maybe it's just because we're coming off winter, and so so when you, when you have the beginning with flowers first coming out, and sometimes it's a flowering on a tree, it's not going to come again. That that's why it's interesting to think about using the flowers. You're going to get mostly that floral character, but throughout the year you may still be able to use those same flowers. But when it first comes up in spring, you use it, which is going to be in a in a relatively in a beer light in color and relatively light in flavor, so it doesn't overwhelm that floral aspect. Then then it makes the beer taste like spring. Are there certain flowers that stand out either for their aroma or for what it, what it, how it imparts in the flavor? So you can think about the different ways you can use a rose alone. You know, you, you can use the petals at one time, then rose hips, and end up using the roots as well. In a point, you're trying to take different parts of a plant. You realize once you take a plant out of the ground, basically you take its life. Then you want to use as much of it as you can. Are there certain flowers that are like, wow, you know, do not mess with this one unless you really know what you're doing. Otherwise, it's going to just either reek or uh, taste of this flower. There are probably some bad smelling flowers that I'm not aware of, but but no. Otherwise, it's not something that's going to turn on you. You know, how you use hibiscus, for instance, and on the parts you use of it. And hibiscus is does have a distinctive flavor. And then, of course, it also adds a lot of color to the beer. So that's that's a great flowering plant to use. Are you finding that homebrew shops are kind of hip to this idea where they're going to, you know, get either freeze-dried versions of these things so that people can try them at home? Or is this... Uh, really, the the province of of big, uh, big or mid sized breweries. What who who generally is attracted to working with s- local ingredients? Well, it has an appeal to home brewers, but but it's more like go out and collect your own 
grow your own or collect your own, yeah. buy them someplace, I suppose. But but certainly, you know, some homebrew shops who, who work regularly with brewers, so whether they have classes, but they invite brewers to come together and trade beers and things like that. So this is certainly mm-hmm. a great opportunity for participation. As far as it is important to remember that these, when you're foraging for ingredients, you can't make a lot of beer. You know, when, when you had Blue Moon doing a pumpkin beer, well, they obviously could not get enough pumpkins. You're using basically pumpkin juice, so they, they had to get some sort of uh, flavoring. What kind of feedback have you gotten from, from your book? You have a ton of great information for brewers. Uh, have you found that people are doing things with this book and, and, and writing back to you and saying, hey, you, you inspired me to try this? Yeah, it's mostly home brewers, you know, who, who either have a question or I, 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 occasionally something went wrong and, they, and then I feel bad. Um, but, um, you know, they don't say they thank it. you, they yeah. say. No, they don't. They, 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 they're, they're always nice about it. They're going, what did I mess up? <laughs> um, so, and some, you know, maybe I didn't pass along information correctly, or I should have been clear. The, the number of questions I get related to this compared to the number of questions I get about hops, it's, 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 you know, I get, I can't see how many, 20 hop questions for one local ingredients question, to be quite honest, <clears throat> it's a niche. It's fun. And I'm saying, and so the, so the, the, the people who get involved who want to talk about it, get great pleasure from it. I can't say, I, there aren't people who get involved and start doing it and say, oh, that was a terrible idea. So that's nice. My sense is something people are passionate about. But if they're not passionate about it, I, uh, they don't talk to me. <laughs> so I, I, I can't guarantee that, you know, how many people are passionate about it. I can just say that not as many people do this as mess around with hops. And, and the people who mess around, lots of people who mess around with hops are very passionate as well there there's a a fun aspect and an ongoing discovery aspect that's that sometimes just lights people's eyes up i imagine i mean with is there a certain ingredient that you could talk about where you've seen that eyes lighting up i mean in the book you really talk a lot about that love of mushrooms for example and how, you know, there's actually an element of danger because you can't just take any mushroom right. and, and use it. But but whether it's mushrooms or something else, where are you finding there's that sub-niche of a niche where there's just like this real crazy passion for this ingredient? And how are they using it? It's certainly the mushrooms appeal to people because a lot of people are really into mushrooms. Otherwise, it, it can be, you know, another example would would be, say, lavender mm-hmm. Long before this book, more than 20 years ago, I had a saison mm. with lavender, and I thought, boy, this is really cool. And so then, you know, home brewing, I, I tried doing a saison with lavender. Lavender is really easy to overdo if you're only adding it for aroma. You know, it ends up smelling like, like soap or, or your grandmother's bathroom. So that was not a great success. And then, and you know, since learning that, as opposed to if you use uh, lavender, say, at the beginning, then you get this real uh, spiciness from it. And occasionally somebody will send me an email about that. But th- that people are out there using 
the ingredients and they might say, oh, this ingredient, it says I should use it at the end, but I'm maybe going to use it at the beginning or maybe, you know, and you could, it could be the flip or, or I'm going to, I'm going to try it with something else. And they discover something altogether new that they love and it becomes their own mm -hmm. secret. So I, you know, I think that's one of the greatest things if it, if it's, mm. if it sends people off trying new things, then that, that's the, that's the fun part. And, and they might have that little patch uh, in the woods that they got right. their secret stash from that they right. can legitimately say no other beer in the world is going to taste like exactly. this one. <laughs> you know, it comes from, that's my dirt, that's my patch, you know. So... For a long period of American history, you had alluded to the fact that Pilsner just ruled, right? And clean was everything. But nowadays, it seems like nothing is forbidden. You know, sweeteners, fruits, cereal, lactose. You know, how do you feel about that based on, you know, your love of beer that really reflects the land? And I'm not going to say I'm okay with people doing every crazy thing. And it'd be nice to see that it'll stick. But if, if people are doing things that are, A, they enjoy drinking, thinking about the homebrew level, or customers enjoy drinking, mm -hmm. that's fine. How, how do you define somebody pandering is, it's really difficult and very judgmental, but we all know what's going on. You know, and, and so if you're only appealing to say the sweet tooth, then I, I I don't know how long you keep brewing to try and sell your beer. If, if you're using these unique ingredients and you think I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be doing this year from now or two years from now or five years from now, and these are still excuse me these are flavors that people are gonna want. I'm fine with that. It doesn't mean that it's something I'm particularly going to want to drink. That's okay as well. So this rigid definition of what beer is that, that, that we fell into, which was basically what was brought from Europe and England, is awfully confining. So to be able to step away from that and, um, and appreciate what comes from other cultures, what might come from food, the mixed fermentation. So whether you're using wild yeast or, you know, a combination of yeast that isn't uh, just beer one. So just perfectly clean, straightforward. Then th that's a, that's a broader palette. And, and we all gain from that. Going back to, if you're just making stuff that's a gimmick and flawed beer, then I can't really appreciate that. It's expanding the 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 audience for beer, but you kind of wonder if they're going to stick around for a nice clean amber, you know, versus a marshmallow, you know, glitter beer or whatever it is. Well, you know, they they can choose to drink what they want. They're not required to say I'm I'm going to drink every style and and appreciate it. The the other idea is if particularly again, if you're a small brewery you're uh, communicating with people and making a connection. And there are things that you you really care about, quote, traditional beers, whether it's that amber, uh, whether it's a, a Hellas, 
then you could say, oh, here's another beer for you to try. You know, now you've created that that situation where you say, I'm making things that you want to try. And perhaps in that Hellas becomes your best selling beer or whatever. How does the uh, the U.S. compare to foreign breweries when it comes to using local ingredients? Are we late to the game or are we ahead of the game? Uh, are there other countries that you're really inspired by as well? I would say for the most part, we're ahead of the game. You're starting to see it's hard. You know, I suddenly feel I feel very disconnected from people because, you know, because of COVID and to say, well, my, what might be shifting. But if, if you go to South America, you just have so much grapefruit and it's taken a little longer for them to appreciate that. But at least you have some breweries now that are interested in that. What's happening around the world was much like it's happening in the United States. Large brewers dominated. So as you have, or say in the case of Germany, you had that many small breweries, but they all did very similar things. A, a lot of people are taking inspiration from the United States. When they do that, then they're making IPAs. And I, I'm not sure how if, if they would move to the, these alternatives as fast as we have in the United States. But we should re- remember that also we're still talking about a niche within a niche. In in the Midwest, I, I would visit many more breweries using local ingredients than I do here in the Southeast where we live now. And that's just part of that brewing culture? Yeah, it's, it's an expanding culture. You know, it's maybe, you know, some people get things quicker than others. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm lousy at forecasting and saying it's going to continue with everybody else. It's a great opportunity for people who want to do it. Uh, but, but you have, for instance, I mean, simple thing, ingredient, just, just the use of honey and, and local honey. So you, mm-hmm. you're seeing that more. Now, nothing like a honey colch. I mean, some of those yeah. are amazing. But as long as there are home brewers, I imagine, there's always going to be experimentation. Right. And as long as people have this shift to wanting to know what's on their plate and wanting to know where things come from, then that's gonna that there's a good chance that that will bleed into this you know subset of weirdos that are the the home brewers, and then those home brewers, well, some of them are gonna become pro brewers, so they're gonna bring that ethos with them. So uh, yeah, I see that a little bit with the desire to seek out alternative grains. You know, emmer is one that you yeah. talk about in the in the book, and buckwheat. You know, things that you know you got to really c- commit to that beer if you're going to go seek that out from a maltster and 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 really you know make a beer with with those kinds of things. Are you finding some interesting grains that you think might break through as you know competing with barley and and wheat? Right. What you probably have more than that is more barley varieties. Oh yeah, that, okay. that are ones that, that are that grow better within the region. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing more local, smaller maltsters. So, so even within the, these Reinheitsgebot ingredients, mm-hmm. so, so we, so, so if you talk about those aspects, which would be uh, the water and, and sometimes people willing us to use more local water instead of using chemistry to duplicate water from a region, uh, mm-hmm. certainly uh, allowing local yeast which may include bacteria to be included mm-hmm. in the beer having local hops which could be the same varieties so if, if you if you take a chinook hop and 
and grow it in Michigan, it's much different than when it's grown in the Yakima Valley in Washington. Really, change it changes from you know where you would get pine out of the Northwest. Now you're getting this pineapple quality in Michigan, and then over time, as people begin to develop other local hop varieties, and I am repeating myself, but this is only a small part of the population. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. We're really good because they've been doing it for a long time and because you could do it on scale, uh, Mm -hmm. which is why you have a few barleys that are being malted while you have a a certain number of hops that taste, I mean, the hops don't all smell and taste the same, but Mm -hmm. if you, if you buy this particular hop, if say mosaic, you know what you're getting Mm -hmm. Um, because they're efficient. And so you can make beer and sell it at X price. And, and those are still going to be the dominant beers. Even, even that would be big flavored IPAs. So there are obviously not as many of those as pale lagers that sell all, all around the world. But then it's another step down and another bit of inefficiency to go with more local and presumably have customers for all of those. My thanks to Stan Hieronymus. Search for his books on Amazon or brewerspublications.com and follow him on... My thanks to Stan Hieronymus. Search for his books on Amazon or brewerspublications.com and follow him on Instagram at Stan Hieronymus. Welcome to the after party. Pull up a noisy rocking chair and relax. Have another beer. All right, so (laughs) I am a purist when it comes to beer. I mean, I'm getting so cranky about it as of recently. I see post after post of people drinking slushy beers and fruited sours and beers that taste like... I guess they're supposed to chase like your childhood if you were brought up in the 90s. I don't... So, yes, I'm turning into a cranky old man. (laughs) But, okay, it's just for kicks. Um, It's been a long week, so maybe this is why I'm doing this. I'm having a Russian Imperial Stout over coconut ice cream. And it's not bad. So I have the... Compromat uh, uh, Crimean Imperial Stout, and then Crimean is crossed out, and it's, it says Russian. This is a Russian Imperial Stout from the good folks at Hanging Hills in Connecticut, and this is an 11% boulder of a beer.
and it's made with all the things that I have been railing against. It's got milk sugar, almond flavoring, cocoa, coconut, vanilla bean, and honey. Well, the honey I haven't been railing against, but all the lactose stuff. And so, I don't know, just for kicks, I'm trying it with, with ice cream. The bitterness is um, <laughs> wreaking havoc with the sweetness, that's for sure. But I've had this beer all on its own, and it is just a very bold, quasi-ridiculous uh, uh, punch of beer. And it's, it's, it's really it's something that I would not normally try. But I'm glad I did. The guys at Hanging Hills, uh, well, the main guy at Hanging Hills, really makes wonderful beer. And I am happy that I have this in my cellar now. And, uh, but it's, it is an intense experience. Another beer that I've had that I really do uh, want to advertise is Afterpast. This comes from Nod Hill Brewing in Ridgefield, Connecticut wonderfully bitter. It's a West Coast style IPA. Piney, some citrus going on, probably pineapple. Dry hopped with Cascade, Simcoe, and Centennial. That's only 5.3%. So um, these are like night and day. But, you know, there's so many out there and there's so many for you to choose and to love. And I should try not to be so cranky pants when it comes to people just drinking beer they love because hey it's a big tent and everybody's welcome more for you I guess I'll be drinking less of the candy soda beers and there's just more for you so enjoy I enjoyed talking with Stan who knows so much more about beer than I ever will it's ridiculous he's Super down to earth, though, so I didn't feel intimidated talking to him. But when somebody knows so much, you have a sense of responsibility to try to get as much out of them as possible. So I was happy, happy that we didn't veer off into, you know, 14 different rabbit holes, which we certainly could have when somebody's that knowledgeable. So go out and read all his books. My plan is to have a chat with another man who knows a lot about beer, David Nilsson, certified Cicerone and such an author of a lot of uh, articles. So his interview is in the can, so to speak, and I just need to edit it. And I should get it out a lot more quickly than I did Stan's interview. There's a lot going on. Lot going on. Got a 14-month-old baby now who just rules the world, rules my world, rules my wife's world. And yeah, just when I think I'm going to sit down and work on the podcast, I'm either exhausted or um, need to do something baby-related, and I am not complaining. I'm very happy to have that burden. Right, burden? That doesn't sound nice. I'm very happy to have this baby, who is a sweet baby. It Starts With Beer is part of the Hopped Up Network. You can listen to other beer podcasts, including Building Breweries, Drink In, Geek Out, 
and the Beer Man podcast at hoppedupnetwork.com. It Starts With Beer is narrated and produced by me, Will Sis. You can listen to previous podcasts at beersnobrights.com slash podcast and wherever you listen to podcasts. Join the It Starts With Beer Facebook page or follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Both are at Beer Snob Rights. Please leave a high star review. Tell somebody about the podcast that you think might want to listen. The theme music was performed by me and drummer George Mastrianis. And background music is courtesy of Pixabay. Until next time, sip well. Sit there crying, crying in your beer. You say you got trouble, my friend. Listen here, don't tell me your trouble. I got enough of my own. Be thankful you're living. Drink up and go home